Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. Who is this? Welcome back to the Poker Zoo podcast. You can find us at persuadio.nl or simply do a search for the Poker Zoo. At the website, under each of these episodes, there's a place to leave a comment, question, uh, any feedback you would have about the show. We'd love to hear from you. You can also contact us at the Zoo Hotline, 410-775-6224, or simply record an audio file and send it to thepokerzoo at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. This week, Chris, a.k.a. Persuadio, interviews Gerard, whom uh, we met in Vegas this summer. Great guy, uh, very good poker player, and some good strategy stuff in this week's uh, interview. Wanted to give a shout-out to the guys at Charlestown Poker Room. Uh, the word seems to be getting out that I'm involved in a podcast. Uh, Justin, who is a large personality there, likes to make jokes, and when he does so, he yells clear across the room. So everyone uh, hears about it, and... Uh, I think Greg even said his wife signed up, and I don't even think she likes poker. Carl, uh, not homeless uh, vagabond Carl, but uh, marine helicopter pilot Carl, was listening to the table banter the other day and not having heard any of the episodes, I thought it was funny that he said, you know, you should put one of those like barbershop quartet things into one of the episodes. So, Carl, here you go. It's a zoo. Some say that he taught himself martial arts by binge-watching Bruce Lee movies, and that Chuck Norris credits him as his original and only martial arts coach. However, subsequent years of chain-smoking now require him to use a Nassau wind tunnel as his sleep apnea machine. We, however, just call him Persuadio. Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. Uh, we're going to travel all the way to the opposite point of the country today from Greg and the eccentric Portland scene to Florida, where rumors of heavy action and apparently this thing called sunshine exist. Our subject is Gerard Sucrum. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Yeah. A serious, good. A serious player, I think. Uh, at least from what I've observed, a very good player. Thank you. And he has a lot to say on poker. And in fact, he's going to be writing about it. Isn't that true? Yeah, so I started a blog about a month ago. Uh, I've always been pretty passionate about writing. I mean, I was an English teacher for six years, uh, and I really enjoy storytelling. And so I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with the blog at first, but now I think it's kind of turned into a vehicle for storytelling where I, like, intermittently put some strategy in there. I think people are enjoying it so far. I've gotten good feedback. I don't know if you like it, but you've been featured in some of the stories on there since we spent a whole summer together so hope you've enjoyed what i had to say about you at least well obviously i like it if i'm in it right yeah sure at least that, that would be soto's response he loves anything <laughs> that's about him gets yeah, very true. excited <laughs> <laughs> well i'm going to get into your blog but i want to start by introducing you as as a player and a person so could you tell the listeners a bit about who you are you know where you are and how you got into poker sure <clears throat> so i remember when i was in high school that was kind of during the poker boom and my friends and I would play these like ridiculous $5 tournaments. I don't really remember them at all. I don't remember anyone actually being good at the game uh, or like winning consistently. When I say that, that's what I mean. Like some one person winning consistently over the others. Uh, whereas like you hear a lot of these other stories where um, these people who ended up being pros, they would beat their friends constantly and then you know, get better and better. Uh, we were all just like pretty shitty at the game. Uh, I got to college and I was able to make my first deposit on full tilt 
and I was incredibly spewy. I think spewing is like one of my tendencies now still. Um, but back then I was just triple barreling all the time and wondering why people weren't folding. I couldn't figure it out. Uh, and I got into sit and goes and remember reading uh, sit and go strategy by Colin Moshman was my first poker book. And I mean, that was a recipe for printing money online. Um, and like printing money for me as a college student back then was playing like $1 and $3 sit and goes and absolutely crushing them with like stupid ROI. But I would play the 45 mans and the 180 mans and do really well. And I remember um, the first night where it really started to click for me. Uh, my girlfriend was in Indiana and she needed to drive home and she was really tired. So she wanted me to fly out and drive back with her. So I booked a flight for the next morning and I was playing on Poker Stars, uh, $2.20, like 1K cap uh, entries and another one that was uncapped entries. And I got, I think, second in one and fifth in the other. So my account had like over $1,000 for the first time, which as a college student, that was like insane money to me. And then <laughs> we got back from the trip and Black Friday hit and my money was locked on the site. So I was able to get uh, some of it back, but yeah. That's how I kind of got started in poker after Black Friday hit. I wasn't really playing that much. And then once I got a full-time job, I was like, hey, let me give this live poker thing a try. I started playing in 2013 or 2014. And now here I am playing 2005-10. So you really do have a background in the, the tournament format. And yeah. so, you know, that, that shows you, you played a lot during the WSOP where I saw you this year. Yeah. Um, is that a very serious thing for you? Or are you looking for a big score? What's the, what's the plan there? Um, I'm definitely trying to get more into tournaments. I played the Hollywood Poker Open in August. Didn't do that well there. I was still making like pretty big mistakes after analyzing my game afterwards. Uh, and then Coconut Creek, Seminole Coconut Creek had a series recently where I got fifth and one. Um, and that was a decent score for me. And what I've noticed when I play cash versus when I play tournaments is just the mistakes people are making in tournaments, even at the final table, are incredibly egregious compared to what I'm seeing in cash. And even as like an, a fairly unstudied tournament player, like I really only started studying tournaments in June when we were there for the WSOP. I think like the more I study, the more I'll stop making those egregious mistakes, but I still see people making massive errors. And I just think there's a lot of money to be made in tournaments. Now you live in Florida, right? I do. And you're, uh, you have a profession. You're not a professional poker player. Uh, I actually just quit my job in June and started playing full time. Uh, but before that I was a okay. teacher for six years. Okay. I wanted to clarify that. Yeah, now sure. the, the reason I ask is, isn't Florida a big tournament scene? Um, yeah, so in Tampa, they don't do as many large tournaments. Most of the bigger tournaments are in South Florida and Jacksonville. Uh, luckily, I have a friend who lives in Jacksonville. My girlfriend lives in South Florida. So if I ever want to play any of those, I can just stay with them for a couple of days. Um, but Tampa doesn't do as many really large tournament series. Okay, but this is, this is part of your, your future and your life to play a lot of tournaments then? Yeah, for sure. I'm leaning towards it. Okay. Um, now you mentioned Colin Moshman as part of your poker education. How else did you get to where you're at? Um, so I was watching videos on Redship, and I mean, I remember watching a bunch of cash game videos. I distinctly remember watching uh, Ali Najad play like 2-4 Limit Hold'em, and he made the hand I remember, it was like Queen 8-4, 
uh, with a flush draw and he had Jack 10 and he was betting the turn and he said, oh, well, this is a value bet on the turn. And I had no like concept of why it was or what it was or how it was. But I started trying to implement strategies like that, like fairly complex strategies for where I was at at the time and just completely bombing it on the table. So I was just giving it away in the cash games. Um, once I started playing live poker, I was trying to study by watching videos on Redchip and probably elsewhere. Um, but in 2017, I remember moving up to 2-5 because they changed the rig structure at my casino where they were dropping in a $20 pot, they were dropping $4. And I just thought 1-2 is just really frustrating because you're playing a lot of $20 pots. So I moved to 2-5 and I was doing not great, but fine. I was more than breaking even. And I decided, well, I have expendable income now. I need to get a coach so I can really start crushing it this game. Um, I found Fausto through, I think, the Red Chip Poker podcast and contacted him and did five sessions with him. And I've been doing a lot better ever since. I attended Sulphur Y in July of last year. And then I attended the Elite Academy in December of last year. Tell us a bit about the Elite Academy experience. We've had several guests come on and talk about the original, the first part, but what what happens in Elite? What what changes you there? I think uh, the biggest difference between the Academy and the Elite Academy is the Elite Academy, I don't know if it was the specific group that I was there with, but it felt a lot more collaborative. There was definitely, you know, Berkey and Chin and Matt Hunt, like, delivering instruction, but there were also many times where we were collaborative parts of developing strategy. Um, like we were all there working together rather than them just teaching us in a, a one-way transaction of information. Okay, well that sounds appealing. Did you, did you find your game improved after that? I definitely ran bad coming back from the academy. Uh, I've still been running bad, so it's hard to be like, yeah, my game definitely improved while I'm losing a ton of money. But I also <laughs> feel... I'm not really sure. Like, I feel a lot more clarity in spots. Uh, there are times where I'm not playing my A game and I'll make a mistake and immediately afterwards I'll be like, oh, that was, you know, not a plus EV bet or not a plus EV decision. Um, and I'm able to kind of look at those spots more objectively after coming back from the Elite Academy. Fair enough. But it, all, it hasn't all been run bad. You pretty much crushed it in Vegas this year, right? Yeah, I did pretty well in cash and in tournaments in Vegas. Um, I was running super, super hot too. We actually ended up at the WSOP and played a daily together just for fun. That's right. <laughs> I think at the time we called it penance for doing something else wrong. I forget what, what we were punishing ourselves <laughs> for, <laughs> but we decided, exactly. hey, let's just hop in this daily. Um, so I fired a bullet and busted about 20 minutes later and then fired another bullet. And I don't know, 12, 13, 14 hours later, I found myself at the final table. Um, and yeah, it did, did pretty well in tournaments, did pretty well in cash. I made some day threes. Uh, it was really great because I had just quit my job and it was like the super confidence boost I needed. Um, thinking like, oh, now I have to pay for my own insurance. I have to figure out how to do taxes. I have to figure out how to do all these things as a professional poker player. Um, and doing well in Vegas was just like the big bump that I needed. That's terrific. Yeah, I, I should have joined you at that final table, but I got kind of the... Uh the old person's approach to the end, end game, and I kind of punted when I didn't need to. Yeah. <laughs> Happens to the best of us. Well, you know, maybe the, 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 good, the good parts of us. Not, I think the best ones don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's I'll true. I'll have to work on that. Yeah. 
But you don't also just, uh, you're not just also involved with Solve for Why. I also connect with you occasionally in a chat group called the Wolfpack. Yeah. Um, tell us a bit about that. I, I know it drives me a little crazy sometimes. It definitely drives me a little crazy too sometimes. But I think it's just a positive group of guys. It's a group of guys who are there to really help each other hone, uh, hone everyone's game. And there are times where certain people in that chat just come up with the most insightful things. Uh, and I'll be responding to a hand and as I'm typing it out, somebody will be saying the exact same thing that I was about to say and then also add on to it. Um, so Pilot, if you're listening, shout out to you. You have some amazing insights. Uh, Nate has some, like there are just moments where you, Nate, or Pilot, or a couple other guys, uh, you'll just say something so maybe like what you're actually saying isn't profound, but the amount of clarity is seems so profound to me that I immediately screenshot it or I immediately copy it and like save it to a note because I know I'm going to want to look back at that in the future. Yeah, for sure. There's some great thinkers in there. I wanted to ask you though, because one of the themes of the Wolfpack, unlike maybe some other groups I'm involved with, and I wanted you to comment on this as a serious player, um, is the reliance on profiles. I find it slightly, troublesome. Could you comment on the importance of it and maybe the issues with it? Sure. So some of the issues that we see with some of the players in the group is that they're prone to overfolding because they think that the pool as a whole is under bluffing. Uh, and that might be true. Uh, it, actually, it is true. I mean, the pool is under bluffing, especially the one, two and two, five pool, which most of us are playing in. Um, but that doesn't mean that actually where I gained the most clarity on this uh, I thought I had a basic understanding of GTO, but then I just finished reading uh, Andrew Brogos' book, Playing Optimal Poker, and he brought uh, clarity to my game that I just did not have before. And I find myself, or I found myself overfolding prior to reading this book. Um, and now that I read some of the hand histories where people are just like folding uh, their flop C bets with top pair, top kicker to a raise, I'm like, you just can't be doing that. Um, there are so many other hand candidates you're going to have that can be folding in those spots, even to someone you believe is uh, under bluffing, um, that when you think about an equilibrium strategy and you think about all the hands they could possibly be raising and the hands they're only choosing to raise with, it doesn't mean that you have to immediately fold all of your candidates. Very fair and sort of a good answer to what I'm, what I'm talking about. Thank you. Um, but let's also go back now. I'm, I'm ready to, to hear about your blog because, yeah, I've got my start in coaching because of my blog. People sure. only only wanted to hear from me uh, because of the way I wrote, and um, I never even thought I would be doing this Yeah. other than that. So tell me what you're, what this could lead to, what, what you're trying to get out of it. Uh, I do enjoy the blog. Tell me all about it. Uh, yeah, so I knew that as like I've been a teacher for six years and teaching is something that I'm just really passionate about. Even like I enjoy the freedom of being a poker player. I enjoy making my own schedule, but I really do miss the kids and I really do miss that interaction of helping somebody achieve like uh, some sort of enlightenment in their thinking um, due to my help. And so I've always wanted to coach poker students. And I thought that if I wanted to do that first, I needed to sharpen up my game a lot. Um, and second, I needed to build an audience and build a following. So I originally started the blog to do that, to help build an audience and hopefully gain students in the future. And as I started to write more, I just realized that uh, my, my passion for writing 
almost for like poker entertainment um, is kind of like neck and neck with my, my wanting to teach students. And I've never been, I love video editing, but I've never really been like a video guy. Like I don't enjoy making video content. I enjoy editing it for others, but I don't enjoy um, like being, being on camera, I guess. I don't mind being on camera, but I don't like being the star of the show. Uh, and I feel like when I write, I can kind of input aspects of my personality um, and still have commentary on the game without being that center focus, I guess, of being like having a blog or being on camera all the time. So basically whenever I'm playing now, and a lot of my stories come from our experiences uh, in June because there were just so many interesting points and interesting hands that happened and conversations that took place. Um, but I'm starting to like find more and more where I'm sitting at the table and something funny will happen or an interesting hand will happen and I'll just jot it down right away because I know I want to get to it in a blog in the future. So I hope that people listening or people reading can read the blog and think like, he's somebody who's pretty intelligent about poker and I would like him to teach me something about it. For sure, that instinct to share is, uh, is a very important human one and I think you're doing a good job, but can you tell the listener where to find your blog? Sure, it's GerardPlaysPoker.com. Uh, every time I post a new blog, I post on Instagram, Twitter, uh, I send out emails. I'm also thinking about posting on the Reddit poker forum because I see a lot of people on there um, and just trying to reach as many people as possible. Good, um, we'll get that into the show notes too. But speaking of poker writing and, and blogging, do you, are you reading other bloggers? Uh, do you, um, you know, besides the Solve for Y chat and, and the Wolfpack chat, what are your um, poker communications, so to speak? Uh, you mean like reading other bloggers or just- like Reading general? and writing, you know, just sure. everything in terms of reading and writing. Yeah, so uh, I'm also in a chat with Fausto and our roommate, Chris Soroka. He was our roommate for Elite Academy last year. And our chat is, it covers everything from like in-depth strategy to I just got cooler to somebody just one-outed me and I need a place to vent. Um, somebody I also talked to a lot, he attended the Elite Academy uh, with me last year. His name's Janosch. Uh, he's a German player who I think right now he's playing in LA and doing quite well for himself. So I think like the relationship I have with Fausto and Chris is kind of like, hey, this is a support group for how brutal poker can be. Um, you can just get completely beat down by the game and know that you're still a decent player because you have friends backing you up. Um, whereas like with Janosh, like we're kind of each other's cheerleaders. We kind of just check in with each other every couple of weeks and say like, dude, I just got a big score in this tournament. Dude, I just did really well in this cash game. Uh, I think those are the people I find myself closest to or the people uh, whenever I like have massive success or massive failure that I want to reach out to first. Fair enough. That, that support network seems to be very important for most players. Uh, what I might suggest doing, though, in order to get your, you know, in order to share your work and to share in the work of others, you might find some of the other blogs and swap links and get uh, get that readership going because yeah. blogs blogs are a funny thing in by 2019. They're not as popular as they were 10 years ago, and yet poker writing uh, is is a great way to communicate. Yeah, so as far as other blogs I read, I read yours, obviously. I read, um, sometimes I read Poker News. A lot of times what happens is I like never check my email that's like uh, the social tab or one of the other tabs that isn't the main tab. And then I'll like randomly check it and see that there was a really interesting article. Um, Nathan Rain, Black, uh, Nathan Williams, I think his name is, Black Rain 79 I read his blog a lot. And then 
I was thinking like if there was a way for somebody like me or you or even Nathan who hosts their own articles on their own site, if it was able to get picked up by Poker News or by one of those other um, like larger companies just to get exposure. Yeah, that, that can happen. Keep your, keep your eyes peeled and it will. Let's transition now a little bit because you have some strategy topics you wanted to go over. And since you talked about tournaments, maybe you could bring up this, this uh, tournament idea that you, well, excuse me, tournament idea, tournament hand that uh, was somehow relevant to you. Yeah, sure. So this was a hand that took place at the final table of the Coconut Creek 300K. It was a $400 buy-in tournament that was, it started with something like 15K starting stack, 30-minute uh, levels, and it felt more like a turbo than the 100K that they hosted a couple of days later, which is a far more popular tournament because people wanted to play with more chips and have more time. But I was playing this Coconut Creek 300K or at the final table, and two seats to my left is the chip leader who has maybe three times the amount of chips as the second place stack. Um, I was like kind of in the middle and just trying to find good spots and pick them. I had two big stacks to my left, so I was kind of handicapped on what I could do. Uh, and the chip leader opens a standard two big blinds. And following him, two tighter players who had short to medium stacks called in position, and then the big blind called. The flop came seven deuce rainbow. Uh, there's about 10 big blinds in the pot, and the chip leader C bets half pot. Um, so first of all, in like a massively multi-way pot, this is kind of dicey at best, but he is the chip leader and can just put pressure on all these other stacks. However, the next player, who's a tighter player, min raises. Uh, everyone folds back around to the chip leader, and he tries to call, but he min-clicked misraises. Uh, he misclicked min raises because I think he had a 100K chip in his hand when he put out the bet. Um, so since he's committed to now a min raise, the tight player snap shoves, and the chip leader is kind of forced to call off. Uh, so on 7-5 deuce, he has pocket fours. The tight player has aces. And the board runs out with a four on the river, and he's eliminated. So these are the kind of like egregious errors. Like, yeah, they're, you know, ICM suicide and all kinds of other errors. But I'm talking about like mechanical errors where this guy just missed quick min raised and, you know, forced to hit a two outer to knock another player out. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. It was a ridiculous hand, honestly. We were all just like, what the fuck is happening right now? Now, was this a rebuy tournament? It was a rebuy tournament, yeah. So one of the constant arguments, and it came up recently in poker social media, is that rebuy tournaments are potentially bad for poker. They take people away from the cash games, which are sort of the baseline of, of poker action. What's your opinion on uh, tournaments and their place in the poker ecosystem? As far as rebuy tournaments, so the tournaments I've been playing are mostly under a 1K buy-in. I think I played one $1,100 tournament this year and everything else has been around the 400 to 600 range. I don't think that tournaments like those being a rebuy format, except at the WSOP, are really going to dilute the player. Like the argument I've heard is that rebuy tournaments allow professional players to buy in more obviously and have a greater edge because if they bust, they can uh, just rebuy and have another shot. And that might matter in a big tournament like Colossus at the WSOP, which I think was a $400 buy-in, or there are a couple other buy-ins that are like, uh, a couple other tournaments that are in the $600 to $800 buy-in range um, where that might make a difference. But if you go to a smaller place, especially like Coconut Creek, which really gets no traffic whatsoever 
other than this tournament they get. Uh, I think they only do it like twice a year. I didn't see that many hardcore pros because it's a $400 buy an event. I saw a ton of people who I've seen at other tournaments that are like recreational pros where they have a full-time job, but they play a ton of tournaments on the side. Uh, and I don't think the fact that rebuys are allowed in tournaments like these are going to make that much of a difference. Like the theory is that if rebuy tournaments are available, pros can consistently win more money and that kind of shuts fish out of the pool um, because they're not winning as much. Uh, I just really don't think it makes that much of a difference at the 400 to 600 to maybe $800 buy-in level. But how do you feel as a cash player knowing that so much dead money is being put into tournaments instead of the, the ring games that maybe you need to make your living from? I think it's uh, a lot of those players, the rec players in tournaments, they don't enjoy. I mean, it's just everybody has their own poison, right? Like, uh, what I noticed when I played in Hollywood is the two five no limit cash games were incredibly nitty. And that's just because the action players have moved to PLO. So I think, I mean, I've only been pro since June. I, I use the term pro loosely, I guess, because I've, you know, I've had a full-time job and I have a lot of money to sit on. But I think it's your job as a professional to adapt to the ecosystem. So if a lot of the action players are playing PLO or a lot of action players or recreational players are playing tournaments and you're primarily a no-limit cash player, you need to learn how to play PLO or learn how to play tournaments. Uh, and hopefully one day the games will get better for no-limit. Um, maybe they won't and you need to adapt accordingly. That's interesting. So in your opinion, it's, it's really not about tournament versus cash. It's about the shift of where the action is in terms of cash games. And that's not NL. Yeah, I mean, I live in Tampa, and the 2-5 games, uh, cash games, even the 5-10 that I've played in sometimes is pretty soft. There are still recreational players. I don't know why the culture in Tampa hasn't shifted to PLO the way it has in Hollywood. Uh, and then again, like I hear in Vegas that a lot of people are playing short deck now. There's actually one uh, limit cash game that runs at my casino where they make up all kinds of their own variations of poker, and they play it uh, usually twice a week, Fridays and Sundays, I think. And like, that's something where I feel like if I wanted to have a large edge in the game, I could just like figure out some of these variants of poker that they're playing. I think they're playing like Raz Ducey and like all kinds of other, what traditional poker players would call like weird shit. Um, but <laughs> yes, that is what it's called, true. It's weird shit, right? Uh, but that's not where my passion for the game lies. So I think there has to be like an intersection between the, the strategies and the parts of the game that you're passionate about and what you find uh, action. In. I mean, the other argument, and this is, I think, like what Solve for Why was championing for the past couple of years, and they're kind of shifting away from that now because the games are getting different or tougher, is like if you find yourself in a nitty game, you have to find a strategy to either open that game up or beat it. And that's part of your duty and your responsibility as a poker player too. Like if you're not going to follow the action, and if we think the action is in tournaments in PLO in South Florida specifically, then you have to figure out a way to beat the games that you're in. So what I found when I was playing in South Florida is the 2-5 no limit player pool is just a lot of seat changing, a lot of table changing. Uh, I distinctly remember walking by one of the floor people and they were saying that the table changing was really annoying for them to coordinate and they wish that the 2-5 players weren't seat changing so much. So. <laughs> 
It is annoying. Like nobody that, likes a seat changer or a table changer. Uh, yeah, but the kind of person who changes to get a seat doesn't care what you think. No, not at all. Now, a lot of training sites are, you know, very subtly taking different tacks and you're involved with Solve for Why, right? What is your, your involvement there? So, I don't really know how to speak about this. I was going to do, I was going to create some content for them, but I ended up starting my own blog and I'm not really sure what the future holds. Uh, I might end up working with the team and seeing what they want, but as of right now, I'm just producing my own content. Okay, that's fair enough. But the question I want to ask you is, solve for Y might as well be solve for NL. Yeah. It's very focused on that, but you're telling me that a lot of action isn't in NL. Is this a mistake for, for groups and training sites to f so focus on no limit? I mean, when was the last time there was a PLO conversation in the Wolfpack or between you and one of your chats? Okay, so the fact that no limit is, uh, this is, this was just my experience in uh, South Florida. I mean, I think no limit is still alive and well. People are saying like, oh, the game is dead. And uh, I think a couple, like as recent as last year, people were saying like solvers are kind of ruining the game. My experience playing two, five and five, 10 in Tampa is it's still insanely beatable. It's still insanely soft. There's a reg in my pool who he lives in Florida for a couple months out of the year. And his stats are just insane. I mean, he grinds between 200 and 300 hours every month that he's here. And he beats the game for about uh, $80 an hour, between 75 and 85 uh, for every month that he's played. Um, so this idea that like software wise <laughs> primarily focused on no limit, like no limit is still alive and well. And yeah, sure, like he could be lying about his numbers, but I've played with him and he absolutely crushes the game. And every time I'm walking by his table and I'm not playing with him, he has like at least 2,500 in front of him in a 1K cap game. He's walked out with uh, one night he had a 9K day. So he walked out with $10,000 uh, in a 2-5 game. Like the game is very, very beatable. Good to hear. Good to hear yeah. from our blogger and writer. <laughs> Otherwise, he's going to be talking about transitioning. Yeah, there's still action out there, man. <clears throat> That's good. Um, you are a studier, right? You do work on your game. Yeah, for sure. And you wanted to talk a little bit about an increasingly current uh, betting strategy. What was that? Let's get into that now. Oh, yeah. So this is something that I noticed more when I was playing in Vegas. There are only this. I mean, this is what I mean when I say the game is soft, like the the betting trends and some things that the community has has realized uh, are more plus EV are more beneficial to their game uh, still haven't trickled down to the two five player pool in Tampa. Um, but one of the things I wanted to talk about, it's something that I've kind of been exploring in my mind, but I haven't really been exploring uh, with software, uh, which I probably should be is uh, when you defend the big blind versus usually like a middle or late position open and you face, I mean, we can talk about a couple different board textures, but you face a down bet uh, and what your response to that C bet should be. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because it, you know, it will come to you eventually. It will even, even to Florida. Uh, yeah. Progress arrives. <laughs> you know, I think one of the first things to the, you know, when I, when I, when I teach students, I start very simply with what is a bet and we get into the philosophy of wagering and these things come in handy 
as soon as you're facing anything outside the the typical spectrum where you have a you know a knee-jerk reaction we face a two-thirds polarizing bet we kind of know what we need to be folding which is you know marginal equity we know what we need to be continuing with and we know that only very strong hands can raise um, but when you face a down bet and i guess this is what you saw in vegas a lot yeah and um, there are a couple uh regs where i see it in tampa but for the most part it's not here yet it's here in tournaments, but it's not here in cash. Right. So the question is, are they, first of all, what are they betting? And are they betting, do you think, um, their entire range? Or are they betting at, you know, what is the optimal uh, betting frequency? Because that's going to change your strategy. What, what in your opinion, um, were they doing in terms of the range behind the one-third pot bet? So I think the reason for it is so that you can bet thinner hands for value and bet more bluffs. I mean, it's basically a way to widen your range and remain uncapped. I think like another benefit to it is you get more coverage on various runouts. So like one of the boards I was thinking about is the quintessential dry board, like an ace seven deuce or a king seven deuce, um, where when you use a down bet, you're able to bet hands like queens, jacks, and tens for value. Uh, whereas I think if you look at the game six or seven years ago, a lot of people were checking those hands because first of all, they don't need that much protection. And second of all, you can derive value on later streets. Uh, when they choose to down bet instead, they can still derive the same value. Uh, and then when a queen, jack, or 10 lands on turn, they have they still have coverage on that card, but they also have ace, king. They still have pocket kings, pocket aces. They still have hands like eight, seven, which now can choose to check back on the turn. For sure. And that's very important because one of the primary counter strategies to the down bet when you're in the BB is going to be to check raise. And this has uh, several good effects. First of all, they don't realize that free equity that their small bet purchases. Yeah. Um, a bet <clears throat> is sort of an investment in the sale of realization. And if they bet a wide range, you can, you're compelled to call with a lot of hands, right? Sure. But, but they see in position every card close to a bet of zero that they won't see if you put in the raise. Um, so that when I <clears throat> work with even against under the gun strategies, there's going to be at a very minimum a five to 10% raising frequency. Uh, the reason I asked you the first question was, you know, are they betting their entire range? Because if they are, they're likely making a mistake. It's a simplification. That's true. Uh, that they, and it's gone around, you know, the rumor in the poker community is that you can just bet your whole range on a lot of these boards, yeah. but it's not actually true. And so what happens is when you put in the check raise, a lot of those hands that were going to gain that free card now have to fold. And that's why in a pure strategy, which is going to be mixed, you know, they, you do want to have checks and you do want to have protection. Um, in those checks. So, so are, mm -hmm. well, that's one of the questions I had is about check raising. Um, if we take a dry board like King seven deuce, where the in-position player has all of the range advantage, should out of position be check raising uh, even five to 10%? Absolutely. Um, first of all, whenever someone presents you with a bet on a range advantage board, what are they doing? They're taking advantage of their range. That's what the sure. whole word means. 
which means they have a number of hands that want to see the next card or that want you to continue passively. That's an, an, an advantage to them. So there has to be a counter response, even if the board is advantage. It's built right into the idea. It's just not done enough. And that's one of the reasons, you know, games, games are often beaten by these very savvy players because players don't counter, make simple counters like this. So what should out of positions raising range, uh, what should the construction look like? Because my thought was, since imposition is going to probably be continuing with aggression, uh, your strong hands in your range, the top of your pole, should be used to protect the other bluff catchers that you have in your range. That's somewhat true, but it isn't very, um, it's the lower EV option because they're also going to check back correctly. And now we reach the river having put in one third of a flop bet. Of course. Um, so what happens in, and you're reading uh, Brokus's book, uh, what happens is the, the need to polarize very strong hands arises immediately in poker, essentially so that stacks can go in with very strong hands. Mm -hmm. So it's more, it's while you'll, yeah, yeah, you'll, of course you'll have traps on king, seven, deuce. Um, the very strong hands really want to start raising now and starting to put, you know, to speak more psychologically, putting the pressure back on this guy who's trying to bet his range and trying to put you in bad spots. And so the question isn't necessarily always to protect the checking range, but what do I protect my raising range with? Yeah, so where do you find bluffs on this board? Do you use hands like eight, nine with a backdoor? I think backdoors are extremely important to this. Um, you can also think about ace high in a, in a different way. Uh, because it's blocking uh, the very top of their range and yeah. their pairs. Mm -hmm. For instance, ace-queen in position is going to bet and hope you fold. Mm -hmm. um, if they don't have ace-queen or they do, you know, they might have an underpair. Um, but if they do have ace-queen and you have, of course, not ace-queen, you have ace-five and they fold ace-queen ace to you, that's part of the victory uh, in the game right. tree for out-of-positions check raises. You know, it's not all check raising, but... The, again, to, to return to the very first point, which is, are they betting range? The more they bet, the more check raises you can have. And I would, yeah. I would say that your check raises can go higher than 20%, especially if they're over, over C betting, even this very small size. Mm -hmm. It's just too much of a victory for them to call out a position, let them now on the turn, say like bet pot into you yeah. or check. Um, and that's just going to be part of the new, of battling with these, these uh, newer, tougher strategies. So what are some other hand candidates you choose uh, to check raise with? If we think of a hand like ace five, um, would you choose, like the example I brought up before, eight, nine with a backdoor, jack 10 with a backdoor? Uh, absolutely, I'd choose those. I'd also choose some top pairs. Not only are they they have blocker value. It's kind of a merge, of course, mm -hmm. but it it gets you value against their defenses. They're they're going to have to fold. They're not they're not going to just continue with top pair. If they continue with a seven suited or ace two suited, mm -hmm. they're going to have to call the check raise. Right. Um, and they're going to be the kind of players, ironically, who are aware of that. And you'll get thinner value by putting in the raise now on the flop. What would you I do don't tend to, to want to do middle pair. Okay. Go ahead. 
I was going to, well, you kind of just stressed out. I was going to say, what would you do with a hand like pocket tens or pocket nines? But that's exactly what you just said. I would tend to put those into the calls. Yeah. Um, they play so well against all these bluffs. Yeah. And they can even lead for thin value on the river. And they also, you know what, they get the same advantage that the in-position player said. Well, if I'm betting queens, right, mm -hmm. and I'm going to get to see that free two-outer, well, we also get to see our free two-outer right. on the turn, and possibly even the river, depending on what hands they're betting. And yeah. when we take the price at one-third, well, now the disadvantage of the one-third pot strategy comes into play. I know this is why... Christian Soto doesn't like it very much. It's too much free equity gets realized. Yeah. Well, if we pick the right hands to realize, the ones that really need it, uh, Ace-5 doesn't need another card. Uh, Ace-5 needs to shut out and capitalize on the pot. But 10s, well, it's right in the middle, right? So we don't want right. to be check-raising it. But if we hit that two-outer, um, we get to cool off almost everything they have except pocket kings. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for the insight. Appreciate but you, it. But you also, yeah, yeah, no problem. But you also presented a, a more problematic board. I think a wetter board, right? Yeah. So I don't remember what it was exactly. I want to say it was queen, 10, 6, two-tone. Oh, and then I also said 10, 8, 7, two-tone. Yeah. I mean, the one you sent me 10, 8, 7, I was like, well, really? Are they down bidding a, a wet board like that? Did, do you see stuff like that? No. Um, well, yeah, from some players, sure. But I mean, I have two specific players in mind that are, their aggression frequencies are a little bit uncalibrated, let's say it that way. And they're quite known for having uncalibrated aggression frequencies in our pool, so. I'm gonna guess that they're betting way too much on this board. Just so much on every board, but so, this board in particular, yeah. Yeah, and so what's gonna happen when they, when they do that? And I feel like I'm talking too much here, I wanna hear from you. Um, but when they bet into boards that they shouldn't, whenever the betting frequency is askew, the check raises go up. Yep. And that's sort of just the rule of thumb. Uh, you're going to have so many strong hands on 10, 8, 7. I know they do too, right? Mm -hmm. They're on the, in the low jack. But whenever, the, whenever things get out of line, basically, the BB has this nice option of saying, nope, that isn't your board. You're right. out of line. Uh, let's put in the check raise and see what happens. And so I would, I would do tend to do that fairly widely. Yeah, agreed. Uh, the other thing is, I think uh, what I see from some of the players in the pool, particularly the more unstudied players, is um, they don't want to face, they don't want to check raise because that's such a strong, it's, uh, what am I trying to say? Like it's pulling out too quickly and they don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, so instead what they'll do is they'll choose to lead when I think the proper exploit versus player is to allow them to bet and then choose your check raise range accordingly. Of course, with like unsteady players, they aren't really sure how to construct that range and they feel uncomfortable. So they just choose to lead and shut it down right away. But all that does is it allows the imposition player to kind of play a little bit more perfectly or close to perfect given this information now. Yeah, so that's, that's going to get back again to their frequencies. If they're doing this really well, they're going to be checking back sometimes. And we covered this a little bit actually just in the last podcast with Greg. When they're checking back, you know, there are hands on these boards that 
need a little bit of protection. They're very valuable, like say bottom two pair. Yeah. Um, and if they're going to be checking back, hands like that get can get a lot of value by leading. So I, I definitely see what you mean in terms of like scared players leading as the solution on the flop. Yeah. But there's, there's also an argument for making the lead into tough players who have a really good sense of what frequencies they should be down betting at. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a now, point where idea, we have more fight. Sorry, go ahead. Um, well, yeah, sure. It's a board that you have a lot of fights. So you, you know, solve for Y emphasizes like a, they like to go with like a, a famous board, right? They go through queen 10, eight. Yeah. And they make you come up with a lot of strategy and, and the, you know, going through some of these other ones and treating them just as uh, in the same way is probably a good idea. Of course. Uh, the, the only other idea is, um, I mean, check raises is important to me in terms of playing in these games, both live and online. And it works fantastically well but calling and leading turn is uh, an answer to these things that Andrew Seidman really liked in his book easy game and I I don't know if I'll go into all that but several players mentioned that that has been very effective okay I'll be interested to explore that a little bit more so cool have we gone over just about everything you wanted to I think that's all uh, maybe if you wanted to give me a little bit of advice about shot taking, I know you've been in the game a lot longer than I have been, and I'm kind of at that point where uh, I've played 510 and I'm not really sure where to go with my bankroll. So if you want to weigh in. Huh. Uh, money management has been, a, I, have been, I have managed my money very poorly in my poker career. So I'll give, right. you, I'll give you very, I'll give you advice based on pain rather yeah, than that'd be great. expertise. The players that say money management is everything are a hundred percent correct. And I didn't understand this as a player. And I thought when I spent down the majority of my bankroll on a sort of unhappy personal spree to sort of deal with my problems, I thought I could just build it back up, but it doesn't work that way. And uh, life happens and time happens and the games change. So I really see what they mean in terms of sort of husband, the old, the old definition of what husbandry is, you know, we, mm. it's sort of shepherding, shepherding this thing through the good times and the bad. So I would simply urge very conservative bankroll management. I love shot taking and I do it all the time, but in terms of the overall bulk of your bankroll, don't take huge risks. Okay. Uh, yeah, that would I'm be a, my advice to any, any pro. I'm definitely a super bankroll knit. Like before I even quit my job in June, I made sure that I had a good stock saved up just in case the games went really bad or I ran really bad or anything like that. Um, but I think I'm at the point where I, by denying myself playing bigger games and giving my chance the option to run well or giving myself the chance to run well, uh, I'm kind of stunting my growth as a player. Yeah, I understand that. It's important to take, it's important to also be, and this is what, this is the, um, <clears throat> the more liberal answer to what I'm saying. It's really important not to think of yourself as a player at a stake. Like you are not a two, five or a five, 10 player, right? You are a poker player. And if a game opens like a big game, you should be sitting down if you at all can. Um, now, I've never been in favor of selling action. I've always. I was done just it about to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's messy. I think it creates problems. 
and uh, you know, there's there's always happy stories where it works out, and, and that's that's terrific. But if you but you as a professional poker player are really a businessman. You're really an entrepreneur. Of course. And the more you the more you piece yourself out, the more complex uh, your relationships become. <clears throat> the more difficult um, managing your money can be. And you get into this web of the poker community that can get very ugly. There's a lot of there's a lot of players who have sort of disappeared down the tubes of being staked and uh, owing each other. And you, you meet them at the games if you've been around enough. There are these ghosts of the game who are always asking for money, always needing money, always trading money. And they look terrible. They don't look like they've lived, lived a very good life. Um, if you can manage your own money and take enough risks to satisfy yourself, I think you're doing the right thing. What do you think about selling action for larger tournaments, like specifically tournaments during the series? I think that the market is very kind to the players to support them the way they do and that you should take advantage of that. And that's... Okay. <laughs> I, I <hope laughs> that you, was a really you, PC you, way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stop laughing. They're going to get the message too clearly. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm selling action for next year, so hop on that. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's, it's, it's been great talking with you, Gerard. Um, I have faith that you're going to do well. I, want, I hope you keep up with your blog. The, the hardest thing with the blog is, is keeping up uh, with, the, with the schedule. Um, it's a discipline, but I, yeah, I think sure. with, your, with your background, you, you know to do it. Thank you. I'm really excited well, I'm about it. I'm losing my voice. <laughs> all right. It was great talking to you, uh, man. All right. Uh, I'm going to sign off for the zoo today, and we'll continue to get caught up. Uh, thanks to all the listeners, and thanks for Tadine for running the show. And we want to thank you also for tuning into the Poker Zoo. You can find us at persuadio.nl. There's a place there to leave a comment, question uh, about the show, or you can send an email to thepokerzoo at gmail.com. Or if you have something you want to include on the show, an audio file, something witty uh, that you'd like to share, just record an audio file, send it to thepokerzoo at gmail.com or persuadio at gmail.com. It will get to me. I realize that Poker Podcast is kind of an acquired taste maybe i uh, told the dealer friend john who will call happy gilmore 4 a.m shift to charlestown about the show and asked him the next uh, week how he liked it he said uh once is probably enough it's uh, not for me let it be known so <laughs> but if you like listening to a variety of podcasts there's two from uh, my listening last two weeks that i would recommend one is dolly parton's america and i'm not a big fan of dolly parton or country music in general but she i had no idea she was such a prolific songwriter and lived quite an interesting life so i think you would enjoy that one and also the office ladies by jenny fisher and angela kinsey uh, two of the sh stars of the show good friends uh, banter back and forth about the show backstories and uh, i enjoyed watching that tv show so it's a lot of fun to hear uh, some of the stories behind the scenes Foodie-wise, nothing on the smoker this week, so uh, not much to share. Uh, we did spend yesterday morning in the emergency room. thought we were, might be having a heart attack, so we do need to cut back a bit on our food intake. <laughs> With that, uh, have a good week, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>